0: The late Presbyterian pastor from New York by the name of Tim Keller once said this, worry is not believing God will get it right and bitterness is believing God got it wrong. How many of you worry from time to time? (laughs) Show of hands. Let's just be honest, since we're in this moment of confession, how many of you have ever had a moment of bitterness, wondering if God has gotten some circumstance in your life wrong. I think we've all experienced both, and what today's reading is going to show us is that in the face of an uncertain future, there's a third option. There's worry, there's bitterness, but there's also the option of faith. It's an option that's never easy, and often it doesn't make sense, but when everything is falling apart around you, it is the only choice that offers hope. Hope. And so we're going to read through this slowly together. Ruth comes after the readings we've been reading as part of this series. And we're going to start at chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and they lived there. Today's sermon is is the last in a series we're calling Through the Waters, and if you weren't here with us a few weeks ago, we started this series as the second series as a part of a bigger journey we're taking as a church throughout the entire Bible that we started back in September. This series started by uh, following God's chosen people, Israel. They were slaves in Egypt. God saved them. God saved them from slavery, led them through the waters of the Red Sea, away from The Egyptians into the wilderness to receive his law, to receive his presence, to be prepared for what was coming next. God led them not just through the waters of that, but also through that wilderness period and through to the promised land that was set out for them so that they could finally live out the freedom that God had provided and be a model nation to the world of God's perfect love to all. And so that, that's the series. And last week we ended with Moses' return to reminding the people of the law before they entered into the Promised Land. We talked about the Ten Commandments. We talked about some crazy laws I was sharing with a few of you, some of those who missed last week. And we learned that God's law was intended then, just like it's intended now, to show us what living free in God and what faithfulness to God looks like. And by the time we get to Ruth, which in my Bible isn't very far after that, they have broken all of the rules. This is a time in their history that's known as the time of the judges. The judges ruled, everyone felt hopeless, and yet in the middle of all of that, Ruth, what we're reading today is a story of hope. And it's hope that should be coming from Israel, but instead it comes from the most unlikely of places, their enemies, the Moabites, and specifically a Moabite widow. Now, the family that we started following here is a family that lives in Bethlehem. And the the word Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And it's ironic that they have to leave the house of bread because there is a famine. There's no bread. And so they enter into unfriendly territory. They go to Moab. And when they get there, things only get worse. Let's read 3 through 5. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her her two sons they married Moabite women one named Orpah the other named Ruth and after they had lived there about 10 years both Malon and Kilion also died and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband and so let me just recap what's going on here Naomi and her husband and her two sons they leave Bethlehem the house of bread because they have no what. Bread, right? They go to Moab, and immediately, this poor Naomi begins to lose everything. First, she loses her husband, and then life seems to kind of be filling up again, maybe in some glimmer of hope. Sure sons marry these two Moabite women. That's not really okay, but you kind of see that maybe God is going to redeem it that way. And so you've got these two women, Orpah and Ruth. Um, Nothing to do with my sermon, but I learned this week that apparently Oprah was supposed to be named Orpah, but they wrote her name wrong on her birth certificate. So, I don't know, I see a couple of people nodding. Maybe you know this, maybe this is true. I read that somewhere. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's Orpah, not Oprah, and Ruth. And they marry these two sons, and they're not just married like for a short period of time, they're married for a decade. They're married for ten years. Ten years is long enough not just to fall in love, but to build a life, to have dreams. But it wasn't long enough to realize those dreams. And so everything came crashing down in just the first few verses of this story, and it Reminded me some years ago about a different story. It's actually a Disney movie by uh, Disney Pixar, the movie Up. Does anybody here, how many of you have seen the movie Up? It's been out for quite some time now. Um, One of my favorites. I really like it. And and just like Ruth, if you haven't seen it, the first few minutes paint this sad picture that's going to serve... As the backdrop to the rest of the story. In the movie Up, it's about a balloon salesman by the name of Carl Fredrickson. That's why you've got all these balloons here. And when he's a child, he meets a girl, and they fall in love. And they grow up, and they get married, and they live happily ever after, and throughout their happily ever after marriage, they've got this dream that they're going to travel the world. And that dream is illustrated by this coin jar that's sitting out on their, on their side table throughout their life that they save up their pennies to be able to go. And just like life often goes, how, how many of you have saved up for something like a trip and then the furnace goes out? <laughs> right? This is what happens and life just keeps going. Life gets in the way. And what we learn is, tragically, they never make it on the travels they set out to have at the very beginning. So let me show you just a short clip of the first few minutes of that part of the story and up. Doesn't it just kill you? The first five minutes, and you're already there. And, and I share that to say that the same thing is true in the story of Ruth. Naomi goes to Moab and loses everything else when she gets there. She loses her husband, her sons. There's no future for the family name. And so, so how is she going to respond? How is she going to respond to this impossible situation? How are her daughters-in-law going to respond when everything's falling apart? And remember, we, we've got three options. You've got worry, you've got bitterness. We all agreed. We all choose those options from time to time, and then we can choose faith. And you're going to see all three play out as we go through the story together. Let's continue the story in verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. When her two daughters-in-law left the place where she had been living, and set out in the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, you go back. Remember, they're from Moab, and, and, and she's from Bethlehem. And so she says, you go back home, each of you, to your mother's home, and may the Lord show kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you find rest in the home of another husband. Now, if you continue reading, you'll see in chapter 20, or chapter 1, verse 20, that when Naomi gets back to Bethlehem, she's literally going to ask people to call her by a different name. She's going to ask them to call her Mara, which means bitter, because she's bitter, and you would be bitter too, wouldn't you? If you were in her circumstances, you would be bitter as well. As you watch the rest of the movie up, most of you have seen it. The whole movie is about Carl getting over his bitterness. And you get it because you watch what happened to his life in the first five minutes. Naomi truly believed that God got it wrong. And so she heads back to Bethlehem to live a bitter existence for the rest of her life. And these two younger women, Orpah and Ruth, are young enough that they can stay home in Moab, that they can find another husband, that they could get married, they could start a family. They're being given a second chance that they might not become like Naomi, widowed and alone. so Naomi's plan for them is a very logical one and it's practical and if these are your daughters-in-law, if they were mine, I'm just being honest, I would probably tell them the same thing too. Go home. Go start your life again. And it feels as if That's the way that the story is going to end. In verse 9, it continues, They kissed them goodbye, she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and they said to her, We will go back with you to your people. This is like Midwestern politeness. Have you ever gone out to lunch and somebody pays, and you're like, Wait, are you sure? You ever do that? You know, like, like, I mean, maybe you're genuinely offering, right? But you're also just kind of like, you know, it's polite to at least offer just... Once And the question is, like, is there even room for politeness when, when their basic needs might not be met if they follow her to Bethlehem? They're from Moab, and so, so Naomi makes a case for why. Don't even be polite. Just go stay home. And there's some sarcasm in the middle of it, too. Verse 11, Naomi says to these two women, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I, am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, which takes approximately how long, Anybody? Nine months, okay? She says, even if I got married tonight, nine months later, I have two baby boys, because, of course, they'd have to be twins to keep this thing going. Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? She says, if you follow me home, what are you going to do when you get there? Nobody's going to want to marry you. You're from Moab. You're not from Bethlehem. You're not one of us. Are you going to wait to get married to when I have sons that I'm never going to have? I'm not going to have any. This is ridiculous. Verse 13, no, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Naomi makes a very logical case, and it's a strong one. But if you haven't learned already from the stories that we've read so far in Scripture, if this was a story that followed the lines of logic, chances are we wouldn't be reading it because seldom do we read stories written about people who drew within the lines when we read the Scriptures. Verse 14, At this they wept out loud again, and Orpah kissed kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Let me read that again. At this, they wept out loud. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Now, the name Orpah, I don't know why they would have wanted to call Oprah Orpah, because it literally means back of the neck. And the reason is because that's what we see. She walks away, and let's not assume much judgment in the midst of this. Let's assume the best. Let's assume that she went back home, and she met someone, and they got married, and they had two sons, and they lived happily ever after. We, we would hope that that's what happened, but the truth is we don't know. And we don't know because the story isn't about Orpah, it's about Ruth. And it's about Ruth because Ruth chose not to turn bitter, not to worry, not even to follow logic, but she chose faith. In the midst of the impossible, she chose to stay, not leave, even though she had every reason to do so. Verse 15, Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Have you heard these words before? Maybe at a wedding? Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal. With me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was stubborn, she stopped urging her to stay. The story is titled Ruth because Ruth chose faith. And the invitation that we receive as we read this story ourselves is that when we're facing an uncertain future, when everything is falling apart, faith is an option for us to choose as well. It is actually precisely, we made this point a few weeks ago, when we don't know what tomorrow holds, when everything is falling apart, when we don't know where we're going to find bread, that is in the midst of what God does to show up for us in ways we can't understand the most. This was Israel's history. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses reminded them before they enter into the promised land of how God provides for them when there is no other way to be provided for, specifically with bread. He says this, God humbled you allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna that came from heaven that you did not know, that your fathers did not know. And he did it so that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. We fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus will quote these words in his 40 days of preparing in the wilderness when the devil was tempting him. Remember he was fasting out there? And the devil said, turn these stones into bread and he will use these words. And friends, it is not because bread isn't important. It's not because Jesus wasn't hungry in that moment. It's because what we learned last time we studied this, and I'll remind you, is that sometimes life is more than about bread. Actually, Life is always more than about bread. Bread is necessary. And in Ruth's day, there was so much more than just bread that Ruth was going to need. Ruth was living in a patriarchal society where Naomi and Orpah and herself, as widows, they were all but destined for poverty or worse simply because they did not have A husband, not to mention the fact that she's about to follow her mother-in-law to a country of a people that they are enemies with. There's nothing here to suggest that this makes sense for Ruth to go, but there's also nothing here to suggest that she doesn't understand that it would make more sense for her to stay. She knows that she doesn't know her future. She knows that she's stepping out in faith by going to Bethlehem. All she knows is that even if she dies there, it's going to be holding the hand of Naomi, praying to her God, being buried in the same place she is, and she has faith that God is going to make up the difference, and that's it. And my guess is that even though she follows the path, that no one else would logically follow, she is probably the person that every single one of us in this room would want to have in our lives when everything falls apart. Amen? And this is the person that you want to be to the people around you, too. And the reason why is because when you say, I will go where you go, I will stay where you stay, the reason we use these words in a a wedding, they actually don't apply to a wedding. That's not the context here. But the reason that we use them is because it's love. And it's love that's not overruled by worry or bitterness or even logic. It's love that is ruled by faith, especially when it doesn't make sense. And Jesus illustrates this in a different way in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 10, he gives this parable. Of the good Samaritan. You need to know that the Samaritans and the Jewish people didn't get along. Um, Just like the Moabites and Israel didn't get along at the time of Ruth. And an expert of the law comes to Jesus and he, he wants to know, how do I inherit eternal life? He wants to know the answer to that question. Jesus gives him the answer that you probably know, the greatest command. Love the Lord your God and love your who? Neighbor as yourself. And so, this good expert of the law, he wants to know the letter of the law. He asks the question, Who's my neighbor? Because I don't want to love anybody that I don't have to. I mean, he didn't say that, but you know, you kind of, have you ever been there before, right? Like, do I have to? And so he says, Who's my neighbor? And Jesus responds with a story, because this is an issue of the heart. And he responds with the story of the Good Samaritan. In verse 30, he says this. There was a man that was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So this would have been a Jewish man. Remember, Samaritans and Jews, they don't get along, okay? So this Jewish man's walking down this road, and he gets attacked by robbers. They strip him of his clothes. They beat him down, and he—and then they went away, and they left him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And so what do we have so far here in this story? You've got a Jewish man walking down the road. He gets attacked. He's left for dead. A priest walks by the other side, and so does a Levite. And this might sound rude, but let's withhold our judgment, just like we're going to withhold our judgment on Orpah. Let's withhold our judgment here. First of all, there were strict guidelines against touching anyone's blood. This would have made a priest or a Levite unclean. And so they chose not to interact with this man. Like Orpah and Ruth had no place in Bethlehem as foreigners, these two men had no place with this man on the side of the road. The second thing I was just thinking about this morning is that if this man was walking on this road and he got jumped by robbers and they left him for dead, what do you think might happen if you're walking down this road and you stop for any length of time? you might be in the same situation. And so, like, have you ever been driving down the road at 80 miles an hour? No, 70 miles an hour, right? Because none of us speed, right? Right? You didn't, Yeah, anyway. <laughs> you're going 70 miles an hour, you're going 45 miles, whatever it is, you're driving down the freeway. Have you ever seen a car accident... And you got to make a quick split-second decision, right? Maybe it happened recently, but you're driving down the road, and you just determine that it's not safe. I, I, I can't help, and so you drive by and you pray. How many of you have, have been in that situation before? Let's just assume, okay, that these, this priest and this Levite, this is what they do. They go by this man. They go by the other side. They don't touch him. Let's just assume that they pray. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt, And then Jesus continues the story and says, Then a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine on him. He put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and he gave it to the innkeeper and said, look after him and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you have. It was a Samaritan who came and saved the day. Samaritans were of Jewish descent, but they were not fully Jewish, and so they were considered impure by the Jews. As a matter of fact, they hated each other, not unlike Israel and the Moabites in the days of Ruth, not unlike Israel and the Palestinians in the days we're living in today. And yet it is an unclean, unclean Samaritan who risked his life to stop, who pulled over, who paid his own money and saved the man on the side of the road, not the upright priest, not the Levite. And so Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. So He can't even say Samaritan. The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go And do likewise. You see what Jesus does here? He said that faith, as it's expressed in love, is lived out in the circumstances that don't make sense on the surface. And the reason is because those are the circumstances where we need faith the most. And friends, it is precisely that kind of faith that Jesus came to invite us to place in him because that is the kind of faith that he paid the price on the cross to place in us as a gift first. See, Jesus has chosen to save us He's chosen to redeem you and me, not because he had to, not because it was coloring within the lines, but he stepped out of the lines for you and for me to bring us back to him. Just like the Samaritan didn't have to save the man on the side of the road, Jesus wanted to, and the Samaritan did too, because that's the definition of love. And if you've ever loved someone, you know that love requires love. Faith, Because is not the journey of love one of the unknown? We don't know where it's leading us. And at its purest form, it reflects the love that God has for us. I'll leave you with a, a song or some words from a worship song I shared. Last time I preached on this particular chapter, it came to my mind. Uh, we've sung it here, reckless love. It goes like this. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down. It fights till I'm found. It leaves the 99. And I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It's reckless because love is reckless. And reckless, the reckless love of Ruth for her mother-in-law Naomi is gonna lead her back to Bethlehem. And since we don't have time to read the whole rest of the story, let me just just jump through it with you here. She's gonna get married again. Did you know that? She's gonna get married again. And in doing so, her descendants are going to become the descendants of King David, who is going to be a descendant of King Jesus, who's going to come into the world to be born in a manger in what town? Does anybody remember? Bethlehem the house of bread, so that he would grow up to later say in John chapter 6, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And I want to point out to you today that it never would have happened If not for a Moabite woman who refused to follow logic, worry, or bitterness, but in choosing not to leave her mother-in-law, she chose faith in a God who would use her to save the world. And since we don't have time to read the whole story, let's skip ahead to chapter 4 and watch how it ends. Let's watch.
1: In chapter 1, we learn about where Ruth came from. A man named Elimelech marries a woman named Naomi in the town of Bethlehem. They have two sons, and they all travel to Moab during a famine. Elimelech dies, and the two sons marry women from Moab. One marries Orpah, the other marries Ruth. Those two men die in Moab, and Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem. Orpah returns to her family, but Ruth travels with Naomi back to Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, Ruth gleans in the fields of a man named Boaz. He is a righteous man who sees her and gives her additional food and water, and asks her to only work in his fields so that she can be safe and well taken care of. Ruth goes home, tells Naomi of what happened, and Naomi agrees that she should stay in those fields because Boaz is actually a close relative of theirs. So Ruth gleaned in Boaz's crops until the end of the harvest. Naomi and Ruth have a discussion about Ruth getting married again. Naomi suggests that she marry Boaz and tells her to go to him that night and talk to him about it. Ruth does as Naomi says and approaches Boaz after he's done working. She asks him to redeem her family and to marry her, and Boaz responds that there is one other person who should do that. He says, if he does, that is a good thing. If he isn't willing, then I will surely redeem you. Chapter 4 begins with Boaz at the city gates, looking for the man that is to redeem Ruth's family. He finds him and asks him to sit down to talk. Boaz then finds ten elders of the city asking them to be part of this conversation as witnesses. Boaz turns to the man and explains the situation. Naomi, who has returned from Moab, is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would let you know so you can buy it here in the presence of the elders. If you won't do it, tell me, because I will if you won't. The Redeemer says you will, and Boaz responds, One more thing. The day you buy the land, you also will acquire Ruth, the Moabite widow, in order to continue the name of her former husband, Malin. Boaz says here that this redeemer will have to take Ruth as a wife, and their firstborn son will continue the name of Elimelech and Malin, not his own. This will result in the child receiving the land as an inheritance, rather than this redeemer's own children. The man realizes this, and changes his mind. I cannot redeem it. I would not want to affect my own children's inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself. The man removes the sandal as a visual confirmation of the transaction. Boaz turns to the elders and declares, You are witnesses that I have bought the land from Naomi. I receive Ruth as my wife to continue the name of her former husband, so that his name is not forgotten from his family of his homeland. The elders, along with others who are gathered, say, We are witnesses. They then bless Boaz, declaring, May you be renowned in Bethlehem and have many children. Boaz then marries Ruth, and the Lord blesses them with a son. The women of the town say to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, for he has not forgotten you and has not abandoned you. This son shall be a restorer of life and take care of you in old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, worth more than seven sons, has given birth to him. Naomi embraces her grandson and cares for him. The women gather and name him Obed. This son became the father of Jesse, who fathers David, who becomes the king of Israel. This is where the book of Ruth ends. By the grace of God. This male white widow becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus.